All right, thank you uh, and welcome to the 2019 edition of our evidence class. Uh, we welcome the return of Judge Gerald Williams, who needs no introduction. His bio is in the materials. Uh, he is going to be the recipient of the 2019 uh, Michael J. Ryan Judicial Performance Award from the Public Lawyer Section of the State Bar. Let's welcome Judge Williams. Thank you. Um, we're going to talk about uh, just a variety of evidence issues today. It's, it's not a comprehensive thing of everything you think, you know, I think you need to know about evidence or everything you need to know about evidence. But it's, it's, a, it's the objections that you, we most frequently get in court. And even though relevancy is not maybe a burning topic, it's by far the most common objection that we get in court. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, relevancy. By way of background, there's a whole body of common law and case law on evidence that goes back uh, centuries. Actually, um, there's even some uh, stuff historically and some stuff in the, in the Bible about what, may, you know, do you need two witnesses to establish a fact and, and, and things like that. But um, the what we now know is the rules of evidence are a fairly new thing. The, the federal rules of evidence are a relatively modern uh, invention. And uh, I know this comes as a shock to, to everyone here, but one of the reasons that the federal rules of evidence were delayed is the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate could not agree on uh, what the federal rules of evidence should, should be. Um, so I, as my attention getting step, I have this snazzy prize from the state bar. It's a folder. <laughs> and if you go to state bar functions, you will get a free folder as well. Um, but this one happens to be from the uh, Arizona Foundation for Legal uh, Services, which I, is a part of the state bar that I really like. So the, the prize is if you guess, and everyone has to keep guessing, and there's a finite number of guesses, so eventually someone will win this prize. Um, what, who was president? What president signed the authorizing legislation for the federal rules of evidence? Eisenhower. Right. Uh, uh, more recent than Eisenhower, further back than Clinton. Reagan? Johnson. I was going to say Reagan. No, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're getting closer. Nick Ford. Uh, Ford, yeah. Did you say who said Ford? <laughs> All right, the bearded Joe. Yes, I'm brilliant in my logic. <laughs> okay. Um, the standard for evidence initially is, is it's kind of a wimpy standard. Um, it's you know it's it's relevant if it has any tendency to make a fact a consequence more or less uh, true or not. Uh, Steve McMurray, when he used to talk about evidence standards, he said the, the question you should be asking yourself as a judge as you're sitting there is, am I bored? And if you're bored, there's a chance what is being presented is not relevant evidence. Now, that doesn't always work because a lot of things that we hear may not be riveting. But um, that is sort, sort of one just kind of internal check, you know, am I bored? If I'm bored, there's a chance that what's being presented is not relevant. But it's, it's essentially a two-part analysis. Does this fact matter to this case and does the evidence being offered make the facts more or less probable and so I've, I had to come up with some examples of appellate cases where there was irrelevant evidence and that's kind of hard to do to find an appellate uh, case law that says yeah this is not relevant 
The first one I found was a, a military case, actually. Um, military uses the same rules of evidence, too. Instead of uh, federal rules of evidence, it's called military rules of evidence. So in MRE in the military can either be meals ready to eat or it can be military rules of evidence. But the, the first one is an example. After a road rage incident, a senior airman was convicted as his general court-martial of wrongfully discharging a firearm. Um, during the search of his vehicle, the police found a second gun, which was a 38 caliber pistol not related to the, the firearm he, he shot, and it was in his gas mask bag. The prosecution obviously wanted to offer the additional weapon to say, hey, look, this guy just has lots of guns with him, you know, at, at all times. Um, and that was held not to be, not to be relevant. Um, another example of irrelevant evidence um, is a Arizona Court of Appeals case from 1994. It's in your outline there. Um, the plaintiff filed a lawsuit for injuries he received after being severely beaten at a local bar. In his claim against the bar, he also wanted to introduce evidence of his blood alcohol content to show that the bar was negligent in allowing him to be so drunk uh, that he got beat up easily. Um, it didn't work. The trial judge properly rejected the evidence. The case wasn't based on whether or not the bar had negligently sold alcohol to him. The base, the, it was whether or not they failed to protect him when whatever he did, perhaps provoking a fight while he was impaired, uh, generated all this stuff. So the, the first discussion question, and I don't have the little clickers like they have at the uh, judicial college, so um, we're, we're going to do probably a show of hands, and I'm going to encourage everyone to vote, even if you're even if you think your vote might be wrong. Um, in a criminal case, uh, the defendant argues that he should be able to offer the victim's medical records into evidence to show that the victim had aggressive character traits in support of his justification defense. Justification is sort of like self-defense. Um, the state responds that has not even turned over the victim's medical records because they're protected by the physician-patient privilege and the victim's bill of rights. The defendant acknowledges that, yes, they would normally be protected by those things, but argues that, that his constitutional rights to due process and to confront his accuser are more important than that. So do you think the, the victim's medical records are relevant, um, should be turned over to the prosecution, and if so, should be uh, admitted? We may have a, a different view depending on whether you have a background as a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Um, but who, who thinks that uh, the uh, criminal defense attorney can get at and even offer the victim's medical records into evidence? Some reservations. Okay. So a, 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 a conditional maybe um, from the, our prize winner earlier. <laughs> uh, who thinks that uh, the that it's proper to exclude the victim's medical records? Almost everybody else, okay. And we have some people that cowardly not voting um, that, that are present here today. Uh, well, the, the, the Court of Appeals said no. You, see, you, you, don't, you don't get this stuff. The, um, especially you don't get it on a hunch. Now, there, there could be something, you know, if the defense has some kind of actual knowledge or, you know, or something like that, there could be, I think we could all come up with a fact pattern to where maybe these would be admissible. But the general rule is no, the, the, the defendant doesn't get to beat up the victim, say, say the alleged victim, uh, during a, a criminal trial in, in most situations like that. All right. Uh, it might uh, be relevant and, and proper is on rebuttal. 
because if the, if the victim testifies and, and somehow uh, a line of questioning uh, elicits from them a response saying, oh, I've never been violent in my life, then at that point, if there are, in fact, records that would suggest the opposite, then they would be relevant and, and should be admissible. It, it would, I, I agree. But, it, it, and, and we'll talk about that a, a little bit more in a different context, but that's about opening the door and, and, and things right. like that. Um, the second discussion question, in a DUI case where the defendant is charged with being impaired to the slightest degree, the defendant wants to introduce evidence of blood to breath partition ratio evidence, which is the, the analysis used to convert uh, breath readings into the same number of blood readings. The state said, um, we're not even going to introduce the blood test results on the impaired to the slightest degree charge um, and we're only going to offer that on the .08 charge and on the .08 charge we're not even going to argue the statutory presumptions. Um, we're just, we just want the jury to hear the number. Of course once the jury hears the numbers, the, the, the case is arguably over in, in some cases if you can't explain it. But that's it. the prosecution says, hey look, we're not even going to argue presumptions, we're not going to do anything. We just want the jury to hear this this uh, number, so there's no reason to attack the, the basis for the number with this partition ratio stuff. The defendant's expert witness uh, was going to claim, well, I'm sorry, the defense expert witness was going to introduce partition ratio evidence to show lack of impairment, specifically that the actual partition ratio for individuals can vary quite considerably depending upon a number of factors, including their gender, body temperature, various medical conditions, um, stuff like that. This was for the new judges, maybe this is kind of like I'm speaking in German or something. This was a huge, huge deal uh, a couple years ago uh, before this, this appellate case kind of resolved this issue. But um, the, everybody knows a, a blood alcohol content number. If it's a breath case and you're, you're blowing into a machine, they, they have a way to convert the breath number into a blood alcohol content number. Um, and what the defense is wanting to do is attack that process saying, well, everybody's different based on their, their body weight and their, you know, all, all this other, their gender and other things. Um, so the, the state comes back and says, well, we're not going to introduce, you know, we're not going to argue presumptions of intoxication. We're not going to argue any of those presumptions. We just want to introduce the number and we won't really talk about it. We're not going to show that as evidence of impairment. So that's the state's position. So do you let the defense introduce this evidence challenging how the breath test becomes a blood test result or, or what do you do? Okay. It comes in. Okay. Okay. So we, most people say it comes in. How, how many people say the defendant gets to introduce this evidence even if the prosecution is promising that they're not going to argue statutory presumptions, they're not requesting a jury instruction, they're not doing any of that stuff. Judge Keegan. I said, well, then, if their defense has an opportunity to be able to present any kind of case, essentially to attack the evidence against them, the state just wants to say, by the way, it's point oh eight. You can't really have to know how we figured that out. We're just going to tell you this number and not allow the defense to go through and go, oh, wait a minute, there's a step to get to this number. Let's, let's address this with the jury. Okay. How many people think the defendant gets to introduce this evidence? 
sort of a halfway kind of depends. Okay, how many people think it's excluded, it's not relevant? Nobody, okay. About 80% not voting. Okay. <laughs> the, the answers that comes in. Um, and the, if you haven't read State versus Cooperman, um, it, it's worth reading. It's kind of a weird case because it looked like the prosecution, in my opinion, was trying to play some games uh, with, with how they were doing some things. But uh, that, that comes sailing in. Okay, the next one is also a DUI case. Um, if you haven't done a lot of DUI, if you've done a lot of DUI trials, you've, you've heard these issues before. If you haven't done a lot of DUI trials, then maybe you haven't heard these issues before. Um, the next one, the defendant wants to introduce evidence that the DUI breathalyzers are susceptible to error due to radio frequency or electromagnetic interference that might otherwise be present in a police station from dispatch transmitters, walkie-talkies, radar units, etc. The state responds that claims of invisible interference are irre irrelevant unless the defendant can show some type of interference actually existed in this particular case. The defendant responds that RFI is well established, well documented, it therefore is always relevant. How do you rule? Do you let the defendant cross-examine the, the police uh, officer who administered the test on radio or the defense expert or the state's expert witness on radio frequency interference. Um, I would, yeah. Okay. They're all shocked, by the way, that you did DUI defense. No one, no one, no one can pick that up. <laughs> what about what about everyone? Does, does this evidence come in, or do you think it's too spe speculative? Is it relevant? Does it come in or not? It's speculative, of course, but anybody that has done one of these cases and they have the crime lab expert, the intoxilator uh, 8000 you know, expert that goes in and talks about how they regulate the machines and stuff, they actually refer to this actually during most of the cases. One of the requirements the officers have to make sure the radios are turned off so there is no radio interference. It's, it's legitimate defense um, on this and it's also easily uh, crossed by the state. Um, like I said, I've actually seen this evidence. And it's no difference than when you hear some of the defense attorneys talk about, well, machine self-regulating, how do you know that it broke, gave this false uh, positive, your my client was drunk, and then it magically fixed itself and so it passed all the other tests. I mean, I've heard that same one. This is really not, not that much different. Machines are self-regulating but not self-repairing, is that what you're saying? Uh, I think <laughs> self-regulating and self uh, either there's two errors that made it self-correct and anyhow, I've heard that argument and it did Yeah. But at, at its core, there are only two defenses to drunk driving. I wasn't drunk and I wasn't driving. Uh, <laughs> everything kind of boils into one of those two categories. But how many people let this evidence in other than Judge Keegan, who passionately feels it should be coming in? Okay. Most people, how many people think, no, I'm, I'm going to keep this out. It's kind of weird science fiction kind of stuff. Okay, no one's keeping it out. Still, I've got at least a third of you not voting. Um, so, <laughs> okay. Subsequent remedial measures is something that we're just completely, you know, we're skipping around new, new, different area. Subsequent remedial measures is something that you may not get that often, um, but it, it can come up in the context of almost any kind of civil case, especially. We want people to fix things. We, we want, if, if someone trips and falls over something, 
we want them to fix it. We don't want other people to continue to trip and fall on over it because there's pending litigation about it. So if, if someone fixes something, generally that's not admissible to be used against them. Um, so the, the, the rule there is when measures are taken that would have made an earlier injury or harm less likely to occur, evidence of that is not admissible to prove either that the, they were negligent in the first place that there was some kind of defect or that there was some kind of warning problem. It only comes in if they say that, hey, that's not even, but if it's an ownership or control issue. So the example there, a civil trial alleging personal injury, the plaintiff wants to offer evidence that um, after she fell, the store painted the curb uh, where she tripped red so other people wouldn't trip over it. And, you know, she wants that information in front of the jury because, you know, obviously there was a problem because they changed it after I fell. Well, if you do that, in this case, Walmart is not going to paint the curb red until after the litigation's over, having other people fall as, as they go along. So we want, we want, you know, the curb fixed. We want it painted red or whatever. So that's not admissible. It would be only be admissible if Walmart said, hey, it's not our curb. It's the city of Peoria's sue them. You know, uh, then, then it comes in, maybe, if, if Walmart was the one that painted the curb. But it's it just a, that's, in, in premises liability cases like that, we want people to fix stuff. So it's not admissible evidence that they fixed it after the, legis after the, the litigation started. Does that make sense? Okay. Next one, I, I just thought this was kind of interesting. Impeachment with a wit with a religious beliefs. You're not supposed to uh, cross-examine people on what their religion is. Um, the the case in question was a criminal trial for assault, and the defendant testified about his religious beliefs, including a belief that a, a wife should submit to her husband. The prosecutor eventually cross-examined it on whether he believed that his relig religious faith provided justification justification for beating his wife uh, because he was not submitting uh, to her. Uh, that went up and they said, no, you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be crossing him, cross-examining him on that. Now, in this particular case, the, they found that the prosecutor didn't really do anything. He, he didn't set out to do it that way. The defendant just kept bringing it up over and over and over again, and finally the prosecution asked him some questions. About it. But that, that's not normally a line of attack um, when you're, when you're cross-examining someone. Yes, sir. What do you, I mean, but there's so many different religions out there that might have views that could really prejudice them in a situation, and they've stated that that's their view. Just because it is based on religion, you then have to not use that? As You're supposed to, well, I, we we can all come up with maybe a fact pattern where it would work, but you we we're, you're not supposed to cross-examine someone based on the religious. No, no, you're yeah. not based on the religion, but they're saying that that is their religion. That's why they do it. That's not the question. Your question was not based on religion. Yeah. But just based on a fact, and they bring in that it's because of the religious beliefs. Is that different? That's different. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But you you shouldn't attack like I don't know if it's. Uh, yet an example, maybe. Well, no, I just said in this case the door was open. Right. So that that becomes an anyway. Arguably, it's not. A, it, what, you're, what you're saying is you can't say, well, you're some, you're yeah. X Y Z and you you believe this, don't you? Yeah. But if someone says I'm an X Y Z and I believe this, then that just opens the door. Pot potentially, it, it, it's it's still a really dicey 
Yes. Well, again, in that scenario, <laughs> I think the, the, the criticism from the Court of Appeals was um, not that the defendant opened the door, but that <coughs> the uh, prosecutor took the bait and then cross-examined on that and just kind of doubled down. They should have just, the prosecutor should have just left it be and, and let the jury, um, you know, just, they've heard it. And now then they get to decide whether or not um, that defense has any bearing on whether or not um, they, they committed the crime. I think the prosecutor just pursuing that more does, did not, is the part that is prohibited by, by the rule. Yeah, and just be really, really careful. If you if you start to get into you know weird areas like religion, I would just you know I, I I've seen uh, defense attorneys try to find uh, non-drinkers by religion uh, when they're picking juries on on DUIs. They'll 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 ask. Uh, they won't. They won't straight up and ask you a, a religious. You know, do you have any, do you have a religious belief? But they'll say something like, "Do you have any of you belong to any organizations whose covenants and declarations prohibit the use of alcohol?" <laughs> um, which, <laughs> yeah. When I was on the jury, they did ask. Yeah. Those of you who don't drink, is it because of religious belief? Yeah. They do ask. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, yeah, what word do you live in would be a little more specific, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it. I, I just, I just found that interesting. I don't think it hardly ever comes up. Um, there is an odd exception to hearsay. I remember when um, I was a child, my my mom told me uh, that pages from the Bible are admissible in court. And I was like, okay, if you say so. And then years later, I, I found out what she was talking about. Um, in a lot of family Bibles, there's a, there's a, a, a blank set of, of documents in the middle where you can write in birthdays and when people died and when they were married and stuff like that. Um, it's not a great way to prove that someone was born. But if the only thing you have is to, to prove someone was born or someone died or someone was married is that page from the family Bible where someone wrote in, that's actually an exception to the hearsay rule where you, you could, in theory, offer that. I've never heard of it being done, but in, in theory it could be done. And the theory is that you're not going to lie if you're writing in the Bible. I mean, that, that's the... That's the theory behind it. You know, I, whether that holds any water or not is a, is a completely separate issue. But that's the only other area where I know that uh, religious stuff could kind of sneak in uh, to a to court. Um, but uh, on now we're going to skip to a completely different area called character evidence. The, the general rule on character evidence, if someone is trying to introduce evidence just to show that the other person is a bad person, that's probably not going to be admitted. Um, this happens in, in my opinion, or my, I guess, experience, in almost every single order protection hearing or injunction against harassment hearing that, that you do. Someone is going to you know, offer evidence just to show that the other person is a bad person. Um, and they've watched Matlock or, you know, or, or something, and that's, 
that's their frame of reference. That at least Matlock, they may have a shot at getting a legal principle correctly. If, if their frame of reference is one of the afternoon TV judge shows where both sides just yell at each other, then they've got no shot at, at, at getting things correct sometimes. But generally, character evidence is inadmissible to show that someone is acting that way on a particular occasion. Um, in civil cases, it only comes in if there's if if you're trying to introduce a witness's rep, rep, uh, sometimes a witness's reputation for truthfulness can be relevant. In criminal cases, there's some exceptions. Um, if it if it comes in super specific character traits, um, habit is is like character. Ha a habit is the bank always closes their door at 10 o'clock at night and locks it. You know, that, that would be habit, it's a, a routine. You know, if it's, a, if it's an individual, you know, Tim always goes to Dunkin' Donuts for his coffee at, you know, at 6.55 in the morning, every single day. You know, you, you can introduce that, that type of habit um, evidence. Uh, prior, it, kind of like habit and character, prior bad acts are usually inadmissible uh, both in civil and criminal cases unless it goes to the witness's truthfulness. If they're, if they're a convicted felon, um, that's probably always going to be relevant if the felony is less than 10, ten years old or less. Um, if they're convicted for perjury, yeah, that, that comes sailing in the, the evidence on, on cross-examination. Um, or if it shows one of these uh, other things, if it shows, if it's, if, the, it shows motive, it shows opportunity, it shows intent, it shows preparation, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, or absence of mistake or accident. We don't really get that many cases in justice court where these types of issues pop up very often because we don't have uh, cases where we're really arguing, people are arguing motive. You know, you, you don't have to have a motive to have a DUI. You don't have to have a motive, you know, necessarily to, to have uh, an assault. Uh, so. Um, we don't see those types of cases that often. And then the, the, the 403 stuff still comes in. The probative value has to outweigh the potential prejudice. I, I attached toward the end uh, a, a ruling I recently made. I was fortunate that both sides were doing motions in limine. Even though the defendant was representing himself, he was doing motions in limine. Motions in limine are your friend um, as, a, as a judge. These are people coming forward saying, hey, we want you to rule on this in advance of the trial. That's, that's great. It lets you look stuff up. It lets you take, you know, you're, you're taking it under advisement without even having to take it under advisement. And you can look stuff up. You can ask other judges. You can get all kinds of guidance on it. So it, it, these things are much better. So if you get someone filing a motion for limine, motion in limine, that's a good thing. Generally, it's not, ugh, I don't want to rule on this. Um, because otherwise, it ju it's just a surprise during trial. And surprises during trial aren't, aren't fun. Uh, you have to stop and, and figure out and, and run analysis and stuff like that. So in this case, both sides wanted to introduce stuff that the other side didn't want them to introduce. So this is a defendant who was charged with misdemeanor domestic violence assault. The state wanted to introduce evidence of his prior felony conviction for aggravated assault. So that sounds pretty good. He, he didn't want that in. He, he didn't want that to be admitted into evidence. And I found that he could certainly, um, if the defendant testifies, that certainly comes in 
you know, on, on cross-examination, if he opens the door. And there's uh, an argument that it's that at this point is it unfair because you're you're almost keeping the defendant from testifying on his own behalf. Uh, because if this really damning evidence is going to come in, and especially if there's a jury there, are you keeping the defendant from testifying if you if if you let the if you tell the prosecution yes you can cross examine them on this? The Supreme Court in 1948, I found this case that had a great quote in it. It said, uh, "The price a defendant must pay for attempting to prove his good name is to throw open the entire subject with." which the law has kept closed for his benefit and to make himself vulnerable where the law otherwise shields him. Um, my guess is that Michael Kelsky has lots of thoughts on that quote. <laughs> but um, in uh, any event, that's, yeah, if, if you're going to testify, the, you know, the bad comes out with the good. In fact, if, if you're going to testify and you have bad stuff, your attorney is probably going to ask those questions to try to soften the blow, um, as opposed to the jury being surprised hearing it for the first time, you know, from the prosecutor. So, or at least that's what I, when I did criminal defense, that's what I tried to do. So, when I had people that needed to testify and I knew they, they had bad stuff in their history that was going to come out, I would let it would come out in the format I wanted it to come out, as opposed to having it come out in the format that the prosecutor was going to potentially ambush him with. Um, but in this case, the defendant had put the, the state on notice. He, I, I'm raising self-defense, you know, so he's kind of, he, he has to testify. He's representing himself. Uh, he's going to claim self-defense. He has to testify. So that, that I found that that direction came sailing in. Um, now the defendant wanted to introduce evidence that the victim was a bad person. Um, allegedly showed uh, that the victim had a propensity toward violence. Um, now it wasn't clear he didn't attach. No, don't cover. Oh, okay. He he had to. Uh, he didn't attach what this evidence was, so it was kind of hard for me to to rule on. I don't know what it was. He he gave it to the prosecution. The prosecution objected to it. I didn't really know what evidence he was trying. He was going to show to show that the, the, the alleged victim in the case had a propensity toward violence. Um, but the only thing that I found to be relevant, just because, for reasons we've discussed previously, was he allegedly had a text message saying that she would do anything to sabotage his future reputation. Okay, I think that, that, does, that goes to bias. I think that comes sailing in. It's maybe not uh, motive, but I think it goes to to bias, and so I, I held that that came in, um, and then, uh, so I wrote up this ruling, you're free to use some of it, all of it, or none of it, um, if, you, if you want to cut and paste from it or whatever. Um, the outcome of the case was, uh, I was gone. This, was, this happened during the judicial conference, I was gone. Uh, so a, a pro tem judge came in, uh, listened to both sides, and found the person not guilty, which surprised me, but um, I didn't, I'm like, okay, pro tem judge found him not guilty, okay, that's it. You know, that was the, it, it, you know, I didn't lose any sleep one way or the other. You know, that's just, that's what happened, and I wasn't there. Um, the, 
I think the prosecutor was pretty upset, <laughs> but but um, it didn't affect me, you know, one way or the other. Uh, so that's. Does anyone have any questions about that? How it. Generally, it's a generally character evidence doesn't doesn't come in if the other, one side is showing the bad side. One side is trying to show the bad, the other side's a bad person. But if there's a prior conviction or, or something that's directly related to the case, then maybe it does come in. Does anyone have any thoughts or additional questions on that? Okay. The the next most common objection we get at right after relevancy is hearsay. Hearsay is a confusing concept. Um, there's hearsay, there are exceptions to hearsay, and then there's another area called non-hearsay. So it, it's kind of, of a mess. The way I explain hearsay to self-represented litigants, um, because there's some, some people use the word hearsay as almost a synonym for that's not reliable. They'll say, well, she's lying, that's hearsay. Well, no, that's not the standard for hearsay. And so what I tell people is just from the bench, I'll look at the witness stand and say, you can't say what someone told you. And, and that's how I explain hearsay uh, generally to, 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 to witnesses and, and every, whoever else is in the courtroom who, who may not be completely familiar with the concept. But hearsay requires, first off, a statement, you know, either a written statement or an oral statement. If it's not a statement, it's, it's not hearsay. I actually had a, a case um, in the military where we were debating whether or not um, a seal on a urinalysis bottle for drug testing and the manufacturer had tape that wrote tamper resistant and, they, and so we put that on there and we were debating whether or not the, the tamper resistant was, was hearsay and could the, the military jury get a copy, get the, the bottle with the, with the thing that said tamper resistant on it or did we have to take tamper resistant off, you know, and give it to him that way? And I, my first question was, who is the declarant? Who's the, who's the person making the statement? If <laughs> it's on, you know, tamper resistant on the side of the tape. I don't know who's making the statement. Anyway, in that case, they, they ruled that that was not, the trial judge ruled that it was not hearsay. It's a statement made by someone who's not there. It's out of court, and it's being offered to prove the truth of the statement. Um, if so, uh, it's presumed to be inadmissible unless um, either it's either non-hearsay or it falls within one of the approximately 30 uh, exceptions to the hearsay rule. If you can't sleep some evening, open up the 800 series and start reading all the exceptions to the hearsay rule. Actually, that, they're kind of interesting. If you can't sleep, I, I'd recommend the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. <laughs> but uh, my... It's not in the materials. My favorite hearsay ob objection is dying declaration. I, I've yet to have a case that had a dying declaration, but that's still my favorite hearsay objection. Uh, again, I believe that the last thing you say before you die is not going to be dishonest. Um, so uh, Oklahoma Highway Patrol officers used to be trained in taking dying declarations, and they would come up on an accident scene with a notepad, you know, and say, you know, you know uh, I don't mean to sound morbid, but you might not make it. You know, is there anything you'd like me to record? And this one guy um, said, "Yes, don't take your don't take your car to Fred Jones Lincoln Mercury and die, <laughs> <laughs> die." And the 
the uh, I the I heard that story from the attorney that represented Fred Jones Lincoln, <laughs> and he said, "Do you think we settled the case?" Because you're damn right, we settled that case. <laughs> it didn't matter what the facts were, you know. He said, that we're, we're, "That's not going to a jury." Um, so that that it takes something that dramatic though for for a dying declaration. If we have if we're hearing a case involving a dying declaration in justice court, there's a chance we're hearing a case that we don't have the jurisdiction to. <laughs> <laughs> so we, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, if you're in a landlord pity case, then we're really, we're really off, off mark. Um, a prior consistent statement um, is not hearsay. It, so it's, it's technically not an exception to hearsay, but it, you can think of it as an exception to hearsay. It's not hearsay. An out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted is an admissible hearsay. So almost all prior consistent statements are um, like the defendant about his innocence or something like that. Um, but uh, the defendant can offer proof of his own prior consistent statement after the prosecution accu prosecutor accuses him of lying. Um, so how this frequently comes up um, and uh, just, so, if the, if the prosecutor says, "Well, you, you know, you lied to the police," you lied. No, actually, I've, I've been consistent the whole time. You know, I, I, I said, you know, the light was red. I said the light was red. I said the light was red. You know, all, all three times I talked to someone, I said the light was red. But the defendant couldn't get on the stand and say, "Every time I've talked about this, I've said the light was red." Um, presumably, uh, this, a statement by a party opponent is not hearsay. It. Um, you can, if someone, if, if someone said, if the other side said something, you can use that against them in, in most cases. Where this sneaks in is sometimes uh, criminal defense attorneys um, can't call their client because they have maybe something bad that's going to come out on cross-examination, but they need to get their client's story in to evidence somehow. And so one way they try to do it is to get the, the statement they made at the police into evidence through a prosecution witness. So they'd be asking the, the, pro, the, the police officer, what did my client say to you? And they're, they're, they're trying to get the good stuff out of the statement um, without any of the bad stuff from the statement coming out and then also from having their, their client testify. I've seen a, a couple defense attorneys do this and it, it's frustrating. Um, and the example I put there is uh, in the outline at the top of page four is defense attorney officer how did the defendant describe the attack by the person the state is calling a victim in this case prosecution or objection hearsay defense attorney comes back and says it's not hearsay my client made this statement during the interview by the police and therefore it's not hearsay because it's a statement made by an opponent okay but you're the one trying to offer it though you're, you're, you, you can't if you're a defense attorney you can't offer your client's confession that sounds weird but you can't the prosecution can offer the confession. The defense attorney can't. It's not a statement of a party opponent if you're the one trying to offer it, if that makes sense. But you'll see defense attorneys um, try to get, they have to get their client's story out some way if their client's not going to testify. So they'll try to get it out through this and claim it's an exception to hearsay. It, it really isn't. Um, if, if they want their, their client's story out, <coughs> You know, Fifth Amendment issues, you know, are, are obviously, but if they want their client's story out, the, the client might have to testify in, in order for that to happen.
So don't let someone other than the prosecutor offer the statement from the defendant into evidence. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, does anyone have any questions on that? What they call self-serving hearsay. Well, I'll, well, I'll <laughs> I used to hate that objection. Objection, the testimony is self-serving. Well, yeah, all testimony. <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> you know, all, all, all testimony is self-serving. <laughs> but anyway, that's, it, it may or may not happen in your court. You may be a judge 15 years, never see that. Um, I, for a while, I was seeing it every other month, and it was annoying me. Um, because then they would they would lecture me on not knowing what the rules were, and I, was, no, I think I I think I know what the rules are. You know, I, I think I think this is wrong. You know, and what you're trying to do is I would wouldn't say sneaky, but you know, if it's just me, it's it's one thing. If there's a jury there, it's a whole different problem. Um, you want to take a break, or do we keep? If you want to take a break, we can. We can take a break before we do hearsay business records, because. So get get some nourishment. Get some get a, like an energy drink so you don't fall asleep. <laughs> say what language is that brother Maynard you're our scholar it's Aramaic of course Joseph of Arimathea of course what does it say it reads here may be found the last words of Joseph of Arimathea he who is valiant and pure of spirit may find the Holy Grail in the castle of uh, what? The castle of... Uh, what is dead? He must have died while carving it. Oh, come on. Well, that's what it says. Look, if he was dying, he wouldn't bother to carve arg. He'd just say it. Well, that's what's carved in the rock. Perhaps he was dictating. Oh, shut up. Well, does it say anything else? No. Just... Ah. 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 Do you suppose you meant the come on? Where's that? France, I think. Isn't there a St. Ives in Cornwall? Oh, that's St. Ives. Oh, yes. Ah. Ah. Oh, oh. No, no, ah, at the back of the throat. Ah. No, 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 no. Oh, in surprise and alarm. Oh, you mean sort of a, ah! Yes, that's right. Oh! Oh! My God! It's the legendary black beast of... Oh! Run away! about an hour trying to find out like clever things I, I, we're back from break now I, I, I did look at YouTube videos for a while trying to come up with clever things to insert into this evidence lecture I couldn't find anything on character evidence I couldn't find anything that was really good I've had some really good cross-examinations none of which dealt with any evidence point that I wanted to, to bring up um, and uh, I had forgotten how good the courtroom scene 
in Chicago is the musical Chicago oh, is just yeah you should watch that instead that's, it's more entertaining um, but it's uh, yeah Richard Gere uh, plays the defense attorney quite quite well in in my opinion so I, I, I had forgotten how entertaining that movie was and I had actually forgotten how good uh, Anatomy of a Murder was which is a old black and white Jimmy Stewart movie which if you haven't which movie? An Anatomy of a Murder. If, if you haven't seen it, it's, I, I recommend watching it. It's right up there with 12 Angry Men and all the other black and white lawyer movies everyone should be required to, to watch if you're in this profession. Um, hearsay, exception, business records. This is probably the most common uh, hearsay exception we see in justice courts. Um, everyone is always trying to offer some kind of piece of paper or or text message or Facebook post or, or you know or, or whatever but for it to be a business record um, it's supposed to meet these criteria it's supposed to uh, there's a four-part analysis the record was made made at or near the time of the event the record was made as some type of regular conducted business activity it wasn't just created special for, for the case uh, a record custodian can testify that the records authentic and the opponent doesn't um, does not need to show either the the source of the information or the circumstances of the preparation. I'm sorry. The, the the other side doesn't does not show that either the source of the information or the circumstances of the preparation mm -hmm. indicate that it's not trustworthy. Probably the best example of a business record that we all see every week is a tenant ledger uh, in our in our eviction action cases. Um, and so, say you're doing an eviction trial, and the uh, the landlord attorney uh, asked the property management employee, did you prepare all the entries in the tenant ledger? The, the property manager is probably going to say, no, I just did the last three. Before then, I didn't even work here. Um, okay. And then so the tenant objects, or maybe the tenant attorney objects and says, I, I object to the admission of any of the records that she did not prepare, uh, prepare because it's hearsay. The plaintiff can't introduce any evidence of a running balance before this witness was employed by the landlord because she has no actual knowledge of the debts. Um, before turning the page, um, how, how do you rule on that? Do you let the current employee testify as to the, the tenant ledger or do you require the landlord to produce everyone who prepared every entry in the tenant ledger in order to get the tenant the running balance? So who says the ledger comes in? <laughs> okay, so, yeah, landlord, former landlord attorney comes in. It comes in. Okay, one more person says so. Who says that this is admissible only with the person who prepared the, la the most recent entries testifying about it? Who says it's inadmissible and you need everyone who touched the document made an entry into the document on the document before it's admissible? Okay, so we had like four votes that it comes in. Everybody else is not voting, <laughs> which means that the break did not fulfill its purpose. You're still <laughs> 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 you're, you're, you're still thinking about something other than what's going on in the court. Uh, I'm just happy when they break it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the objection, if, if that's the objection, it should be overruled under the business record exception. Um, the records custodian is not required to have created the document. She has to be able to testify. I say she, he or she has to be able to testify 
that the document was made near the type of the, the event and by someone with first-hand knowledge of a regularly conducted business activity. Um, in the second section, we're going to talk about uh, the, the debt buyer cases and, and ways to approach those, but that's the other most common business record exception that, that we will get offered at us is the, the chain of title and the documents that are filed at us in connection with a, a debt buyer case. Um, as to whether or not um, this should be something that, you know, is it, is it fair, you know, that all, these, the, all the people that touch the document don't have to, you know, shouldn't they have to come in and testify too? Um, remember, there's a, a long history of, of common law that, that's associated with exceptions to hearsay. And uh, a judge named Learned Hand, who is, uh, I, I call him a famous dead judge, <laughs> he's one of the people that it was scholarly that people looked toward. Uh, back in 1927, he wrote, the routine of modern affairs, mercantile, financial, and industrial is connected with so extreme a division of labor that the transactions cannot be provided at first hand without the occurrence of persons, each of whom can, can contribute no more than a slight part, and that part not dependent upon the memory of his event. Records and records alone are their adequate repository and are in practice accepted as accurate upon the faith of the routine itself and of the self-consistency of their contents. Unless records can be used in court without the task of calling those who at all stages had a part in the transactions recorded, nobody need ever pay a debt if only his creditor does a large enough business. <laughs> Which is sort of the reason for the, the business record exception to the, the hearsay rule. Um, we, we're allowed to trust the paperwork, or at least we're allowed to admit the paperwork um, whether or not we completely trust the paperwork is a, is a separate issue. Someone, had, yes, you had a question. Did you, did you say you're going to talk about secondary and third tertiary um, debt buyers? Yes, but that's in the, that's under the best practices part. Okay. Yeah, you'll, you'll have to stick around. No, no, no. It's <laughs> it's a, it's a, when they provide a blank document, I don't know if you're going to talk about that, and no backup, and only an affidavit from the from the original debt buyer. You can talk about it now. Okay, I guess I'll talk. There's, I, I have a, a, a law firm that's in Tucson that still notices me every time an answer is filed in the case because they don't like how I, I ruled five years ago on, in one of their trials. But I called it records custodian by proxy um, because on the, the debt buying cases, they're, they're not even, they're thinking this this buying uh, Excel spreadsheets is the easiest way. They're, they're buying electronic data. They're not even buying paper. They're buying clumps of electronic data. And this is a $2 billion a year industry where um, about five or six major uh, debt buyers purchased debt that was originally owned by somebody else that's been charged off. So maybe Visa originally owned the debt. Maybe it was a Best Buy card. They sold it to someone who sold it to somebody else who sold it to somebody else and it finally gets stripped down into what we see uh, in our courts. And uh, these, uh, 
unfortunately, or well, fortunately if you're the plaintiff, unfortunately if you're trying to figure out how valid these debts are, um, most of them resolve through a default judgment. The ones that don't resolve through a default judgment are frequently resolved through a summary judgment where the defendant doesn't respond to the summary judgment motion. So it very rarely do these things ever get to trial. When they get to trial, I took the position, I called, I, I invented a name for it, I called it records custodian by proxy. Because uh, I, didn't, I didn't like someone testifying who had never touched the documents, never prepared any of them, testifying as the, the records custodian for the documents. They would come in and say, well, no, I, I've never worked for Visa, but I've seen Visa statements my entire life. Um, I, I, I work for this company that purchases Visa statements, therefore I know what Visa statements look like. Well, by that standard, I could testify as a records custodian for Visa. I've seen Visa statements my entire adult life, too. Um, I, I, I've never worked for Visa. And so I, I found that that did not, met, did not meet the, the record. You know, I, that, that, that was a, a break, that that was not something that was admissible. Since that time, there's appellate case law that's against me pretty clearly. It's called the Adopted Records Doctrine. I disagree with it, but there's, there's case law that, unfortunately from my perspective, because I like my position, but it, it's, it makes it pretty clear that if you buy someone else's records, the record, your records custodian can testify about someone else's records. I think that violates at least the intent of the business records exception, because how do you know that they were pre being prepared at or near the same time? How do you, how do you know anything about them? So it, it's frustrating to me, but that's, that's what the state of the law is. So you're saying if they provided a blank document, no ledger that shows me where they came up with the amount, and just somebody testifies this amount is what it is? Well, they'll probably have a way to come up with the amount, because they'll probably have the last statement. No, no, no this was uh, um, Aaron's Brothers. It's a rental. We, I've seen a lot of it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So what they're doing is just sending a blank Aaron Brothers dot, um, agreement. Contract. 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 There's no ledger with it. Let's not use names. Yeah. With, okay, without saying any particular okay, with, uh, business, but yeah, I, I... It's just we're all getting the same one. I, I haven't seen those, so I, I, I apologize. But, but all they're doing is using, they're just having a secondary or tertiary buyer who gives an affidavit that this is the right amount. But based on what? They, 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 they're they not going to fall under the credit card statute. No, yeah. credit card. Let me help narrow that because I've had the exact same case. It's <laughs> a, it's a, uh, it's a, the one that I had was a, a default hearing. Yeah. They want their judgment and they present, uh, here, here's the amount of judgment that we want. We don't have a copy of the original contract, but here's a blank contract that we are saying as, as a second or tertiary debt buyer, we're saying that was the type of contract that was in use at the time, and that, that is the contract that they must have signed at the time, and in that contract it provides us these different things. And I'm like, uh, I, I deny the default in that particular instance because I, I found that that is, um, uh, they, they didn't prove up anything. All they had is really just a number. Here's the number that they owe us. Right. The contract was of no value as far as I was concerned. It's a blank contract. Yeah. Maybe you think that is the same contract that they must have signed, but you don't know if they signed anything or that it was that version of the contract they signed. So there's all kinds of issues with what they were proffering at that. Um, we'll find yeah, out. Yeah, I, I would argue that that's not, yeah. it, it, well, 
you can admit the blank contract, um, but I don't know that it, it establishes anything. That's that's well, a, that's well, a separate. I, I did yeah, that's a separate issue. No, I didn't. I didn't. I said I didn't need to have these documents. And they said, oh, there are boxes stored away. We don't have access to it. Well, that's too bad. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, it, this is different than a credit card. No, well, yeah, credit 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 card. There's a statute, yeah, and, and, right. and credit cards. Sometimes they'll say, no, we don't have the original contract, we don't have a pen contract, but this is the contract that was in yeah. place at the time. And I, I thought maybe that's where you were no, going. No, no, I know that with credit cards it's an easy one. Okay. Judge Osterfield? I, I happen to Go. <laughs> Actually, you first. Okay, all right. I actually represented one of those people for a while until I found out what they were really doing. They buy debt for two to four cents on the dollar. They spend that much on it? <laughs> And they they hope that they can collect on ten percent because they're making essentially four hundred, two hundred, four hundred percent on their money. But what they'll their typical MO is if they get an answer, they'll send their lawyer to the pretrial conference with one goal, and that's to get them to sign a reaffirmation of the debt because half the time the debt is already too old mm -hmm. to collect. But once you got a reaffirmation, bang, it's like signing a whole new agreement. They start from scratch. So be careful when you get to the pretrial conferences where these people are in and they've stipulated to a judgment that, you know, hey, where's the paperwork, that type of thing. You can't give them advice, but you know that they're probably being conned a lot of the time. Okay. <coughs> I'll just add, there was a nice uh, explanation of the business exception records rule by Judge Popko and one of the uh, lower court appeals that he decided. Um, and and it, it's very useful, it is accurate in detail, uh, but I've had uh, members of, of that bar tell me that we don't have to pay any money to it. Okay, well if you wanna, if you can, if you can locate that and, and shotgun to everybody, I know I would appreciate it. Um, what was the nutshell of the decision? Uh, that there should be all of these safeguards in place when uh, we're looking at these records to make sure that they are accurately presented. Uh, the rule is very detailed. Um, we have some of them here, but the actual rule has a few more. And Commissioner Popko went through each of them and uh, targeted one that is very rarely in the documents we get. That the individual has to indicate that they, um, they have experience in this specific area of uh, reviewing these specific records, not not to the detail of that defendant, but reviewing the records related to the claim, um, and, and that is part of the, the exception. So he, he he gave a very good perspective on the rule, um, which the industry has glossed over. Uh, but again, the industry understands as well that our appellate, our lower jurisdiction, appellate decisions are not binding. Well, I, I think it's more of a business model that they know that they're going to get 80% of their cases from defaults. Yes. <laughs> With regard to public records, I would just caution, simply because something is filed in the public record doesn't make it accurate. A situation where four or $500,000 mortgage was payoff was fraudulently filed. Someone ended up spending a lot of time in prison for that. But just, it just means it's the document that was filed. There may be, in, in, with regard to the, not necessarily credit cards, but other debts, there's a lot of, uh, 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 was it 
uh, you know, personality effect. Um, you know, ID. So it may not be the person to come in and say, no, it's not my signature. I never bought this thing. I've never been in that state. So always Yes. I was also going to make the comment about the, where you don't have a contract. Well, this is the contract they might have signed. Well, yeah, until you show me one that's signed, I might give you the principal, but you're not getting any 24, 29, 46% interest, and you're not getting attorney's fees. Oh, but you know, when I get the blank, they, they, yeah. they point to the part of the, to um, support why they're getting the attorney's fees, because that contract says something about attorney's fees. And that's the only reason they send me the blank. Yeah, yeah. it's not signed. Well, yeah, they have to establish, first, that there was a contract before they can establish that it was breached. But we're going to talk about attorney's fees a little <coughs> bit in the next section, too. Um, in terms authentication looks a lot like the business record is exception to hearsay. And it, it's easy to, to mix the two concepts up. I, uh, attorneys sometimes mix it up. They, they, they mix up the arguments. Authentication is whether or not something is genuine. Is it a true and correct copy of, of whatever it is? Um, it's different than hearsay. Um, is it the, the, the analysis is, is it what the litigant is claiming it to be? A self-authenticating document um, can be like a government record or, or a certified copy of a public record. People will say, but it's notarized. But it's, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's notarized, therefore you have to admit it. No, it, it just means, I, I, I tell people that notaries are forgery police. They just mean that someone really signed it. It, it doesn't mean anything more than that, really. It, it doesn't make it official. It doesn't make it more trustworthy. It, it just means someone really signed it. Um, so a notary, a notary is like a forgery police. So in the ex example there, I, I picked kind of a silly example that I wrote, but I just said, you know, the plan, I would like to offer the certified copy of a marriage license. You know, defendant objection. The document's hearsay, it's not the original. Neither the witnesses to the alleged ceremony nor the person who performed the alleged ceremony is here to testify. Uh, my client disputes that there ever was a marriage in this case. Okay. Uh, Your Honor, this document is admissible under Rule 902.11 as a self-authenticating document. That's the wrong analysis. It's admissible as a business record exception to hearsay. It's authentic, you know, because it's it's a true and correct copy. It's a certified copy. But I'll I'll hear people say, well, it's admissible because it's self-authenticating. No, it, it's admissible if it falls under one of the exceptions to hearsay. It's authentic if it's a true and correct copy of it. So if, if something something can be a true and correct copy, it can still be junk. You know, it, it could still not come in under the business. Now, it can be a true and correct copy of the, the blank contracts we were talking about earlier. That doesn't mean they're admissible. So it, it's a different analysis. But you'll hear people say, um, you're on, you're not, this is admissible as, as a hearsay exception because it's self-authenticating. No, those are two different analysis. Um, if something complies with the business records exception to hearsay, it, also, it likely also complies with the self-authenticating uh, requirements or with the authentication requirements, but the same thing's not true in reverse, if that makes sense. And that's what I wrote in there. Um, hearsay exception public records. Um, official government records are usually always admissible uh, in court. So during a, a sentencing, you know, Your Honor, 
the prosecutor says, I'd like to introduce these three pages indicating that the defendant has a prior DUI four years ago from, from a municipal court. The defense attorney objects. It's hearsay. The state has no witness that can testify as to the validity of the documents, and their admission would violate my client's uh, constitutional right to confrontation. Um, that objection should probably be overruled, um, uh, assuming that it is a certified copy, and there's, they'll have a, something on there that says that. It won't, it shouldn't be a surprise, uh, or hopefully it's not a surprise, um, that there's a, the prior DUI that should have been disclosed much earlier in the case. And on police reports, I, I put as a general rule, if you're about to admit a police report into evidence, there's a chance you're about to make a mistake. There, there, are, some, there, is, there are some exceptions to that, um, and we'll talk about those, but uh, a, a police report is classic hearsay. And it's not only hearsay, it's what some people call pulled and pulled hearsay. It's hearsay within hearsay on top of other hearsay. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's an out-of-court statement recorded by someone else making an out-of-court statement. Uh, so it's, it's double hearsay. Um, public records um, can be admitted in a, in a criminal case in some cases. You can admit them to record, to refresh people's recollection. We've all seen the police officer who can't remember something. The prosecutor goes up and shows them this police report. They're supposed to read it. Prosecutor takes it back, and then that refreshes their recollection. That's okay. You don't admit the police report. Um, if if you would just admit police reports, there'd be no reason to have police officers testify at trials. You could just hand the report in and say, "Judge, read this. What do you think?" Um, so if if there's there are a couple exceptions. There's um, you may see some crime-free lease addendums um, that still have. A phrase in them that waives hearsay objections. Um, I don't think you can waive a hearsay objection as you sign your lease. Um, I don't think that's that's a, a fair provision to put in a lease. But every now and then you'll see uh, a lease provision that says, "Oh yeah, by signing this crime-free lease addendum, you also waive all hearsay objections." Well, why would the landlord want that in there? Well, the landlord wants that in there so they can introduce the police report um, at, at the eviction trial and not have the police officer actually be there to testify. Um, I, I don't allow that. Uh, I, I don't recommend that, that you do either. I don't think that's an appropriate um, use of, of uh, clauses like that. Um, generally, a copy will do. If, if someone's objecting because it's only a copy, it's not the original, Seriously, if it's an attorney doing it, say seriously, counsel. You know, if it's a, if it's self-represented litigant, then be a little nicer. Um, but if someone is demanding the original of a document, especially if it's like a a marriage license or a, or I, I don't know, you know, something. It's you know that generally a copy if a copy will do just fine. Um, on protective orders, there are. Uh, these are orders of protection hearing. There's a special RPOP, Rule 36, um, that everyone needs to be familiar with. Relevant evidence there um, means whatever's in paragraph four of the petition. And I, I try to enforce this as, as strictly as I can. It's one of the things I announce at the beginning of a hearing when I'm doing an order of protection hearing or an injunction against harassment hearing. I say, you know, do I understand that there are a lot of issues between the two of you. But what today's hearing is going to be about is what's in paragraph four of the petition. That's what the 
plaintiff put in, that's what he or she alleged, that's what they, he or she has to prove for me to either keep the order in place or if they don't prove it, then I dismiss it or maybe I modify it. But that's what the hearing's gonna be about. It's not gonna be about who's a better father, who's a better mother, who's a better person. You know, it, it's gonna be about what's in paragraph four of the petition. And if, if you tell them that, that up front, when they start to drift into other things, then you can pull them back in. It's, it's harder if you don't tell them what the rules are up front, because um, then they'll drift and you, they'll, they'll just be, well, he got to say bad things about me, why can't I say bad things about him? Um, um, on the formal rules of evidence, though, um, almost any report, document, standardized form, um, can be considered as evidence um, on in those types of cases. So there, a police report does come in. But they always, I don't know, maybe it's just my jurisdiction when people, I've got a police report, I want to show you, here's the police report, and what they hand me is the victim pamphlet that they got uh, from the police officer. So, well, this is that not actually a police report. This is, this is your, these are your rights as a victim, so you should hold on to that. Um, or they'll, they'll say, this is a police report, and it's really like a, a run sheet or some kind of a summary of a radio call or something like that. I'm like, well, this isn't really a police report, but you know, I can, I can consider it to, for the purpose of confirming that the police actually came. You know, but I, I, it's not going to conclusively establish one thing or another. I actually came pretty close to to two thirty. I guess I was worried that I wouldn't have enough material uh, to to cover. Uh, an hour and a half of time, so I brought actually filler stuff. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I uh, I learned yesterday, um, the National Judicial College is, is is offering an online class right now that you can probably still register for because you've dismissed the first class session called uh, Science for Judges, and you can I couldn't get my computer to the audio on my computer to work, but the slides on the computer worked, and so you can also call in. So I had it on speakerphone with the slides working, and that was my big workaround. So, um, but yesterday was a, a lecture by, um, even though it's a class out in the, based out of the National Judicial Center in Nevada, it was a lecture from uh, Judge Thuma, who's on the Arizona Court of Appeals, and he talked about um, the Fry standard versus the the more modern uh, Daubert standard, and the Daubert is the one that's in the the rules of evidence. If you have a expert witness testifying and you're someone challenging, is that you need to look at the 700 series rules. But until approximately 1993, when that case came out, the rule for when novel scientific evidence was admissible at trial was the thing from which the deduction is made, it must be sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. That was the Fry standard. Fry turns out is only like a five-page opinion. It's really short. On Westlaw, it's like two screens, <laughs> because the, the print is, is fine. And I, I learned when taking this class that the expert witness in Fry, although he's not mentioned in the case, was this guy named Dr. William Marston who, among other things, created Wonder Woman. Um, he was, he, it was his idea to, to make Wonder Woman. And the evidence that was an issue in the Fry case that the trial judge rejected was what was called a deception test. And the deception test was based on the suspect's systolic blood pressure. Um, and the court said, in other words, the theory seems to be 
that the truth is spontaneous and comes without conscious effort, while the utterance of a falsehood requires a conscious effort, which is reflected at blood, in the blood pressure. Um, so this was one of the first versions of a lie detector test, is basically what it was. And it wasn't the prosecution that was trying to offer, it was the defense. The defendant wanted to offer the, the proof that he passed this test, therefore he's not guilty. And the trial judge said, no, we're not, we're not admitting that into evidence. It went up on appeal, and the defendant's second-degree murder conviction was affirmed. So that's your evidence fun fact for the day, I guess. But um, thanks. You've been a, a good audience, attentive audience. Any questions? Any questions? Right. If not, you can ask questions between the breaks. That's okay. All right. Thank you. If you're not staying for the next class, uh, 